brand new sound for your Sunday morning. Introducing the Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. And Rabbi Joseph Fantasnik of Religion on the Line. Now, now on 77 WABC, the Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. You know, I was thinking, Rev, you and I one day ought to just trade places, because if you look at Passover, uh, it's it's about trading places. It's about knowing what does it mean to be slaves in Egypt. And we go through the ritual of trying to identify uh, with those who endured so much pain. So it might be interesting, you know, it's a story of trading places. I want to be the Rev for one day. And you want to be the Rev? For I one day. And I'll pick the day. What's your, what's your day off? That's the day I'm going to pick. <laughs> you know, I remember the old song, Walk a Mile in My Shoes, You've Got Nothing to Lose, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Trading Places, that was a good movie, but it's also a good idea. Because yeah. we really don't know until we get the context and the history associated with people's experience. You know, uh, and all of a sudden, we, we can emphasize, we can say, wow, I didn't know it was like that. And we also find common ground. Yeah. We find things that we share in, in our experiences. And, I, and I think that's important. I remember I used to uh, ask my father when it was Yom Kippur, which was a very painful fast day. You fast for 25 hours, and he did it with ease. And I said, How wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You fast for 25 hours? Yeah. Straight? Yes. No water, uh, no water, no solids, no, nothing, nothing. And so I remember yeah. asking my dad, "How do you do it so easily?" I said, "You know, it's really bothering me. I'm headachy. I'm hungry." He said, "Listen, after what I went through during the uh, the war, the Holocaust, uh, I can get through it one day uh, of fasting because there were many days that we had nothing to eat, um, and that was an idea. You know, you." How many of us know what it is to go hungry? And you see people sometimes have to beg for food, who stand in line at a food pantry. Um, and, you know, that's what Passover says. Try to trade places a little bit. Try to see what it is to, to be someone else who's hurting, who's vulnerable. And maybe you'll have much more compassion. I have to mention, wow. Rev, before I get into any trouble, this is being pre-recorded. Today is Passover. We pre-recorded this program. And Absolutely. You'll, and you'll give me a note if I need uh, it for I, any I, of the I, higher I authorities. I'm your witness, okay? Right. So I got you back on this yeah. one. But but when you talk about fasting, because you and and uh, the parallel between our our practices, you know, uh, our rituals, because we do forty days of Lent to celebrate uh, the temptation of Christ mm-hmm. in in the wilderness, and we choose something that we're going to give up for that you know forty days, something meaningful. You know, and it's not always food. You know, it could be a food element, but some people need to fast from gossip. They need to fast from from social things that continue to tear down instead of building up their interior life. Yeah, I always love the beginning of the Passover Seder where we say, let all who are hungry come and eat. Uh, let all who are needy come and join us. So it's not only about the food. There are people who have all kinds of uh, issues they have to contend with on a daily basis. And we say, we know you're hurting. We know you're hungry. Join us. There's a place for you at the table. Uh, and I wish we could expand that spirit in this country where people realize, you know, we can have our different 
views, our different uh, theologies, and we can still sit at a table and talk to each other, uh, not at each other, but with each other. Uh, so uh, I, I really... Yeah, we, you, you and I did a piece on New York One, gosh, it was last, a year, about a year ago. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, what we were talking about the other and how people have these fears uh, and concerns, and they don't stop and ask whether those fears are legitimate. And yet, they, they allow those fears to govern them. And most of that is ignorance, uh, a lack of understanding the other person. Yeah. We're taking the time to understand. It's not until we do that that we find out, wait a minute, they're, they're just like us. We're, we're the same, basically. Yeah. And also, you know, one of the messages of Passover is freedom. You know, it, it's a story of liberation. And I, it's, it's not just freedom for others. It's freedom that we have the right to be who we want to be as long as we don't jeopardize the freedom of others. And I think of this, this terrible story. There's a young woman, I don't know if you read about it, who lost her job at Teen Vogue because of a tweet she did when I think she was, was 10 years earlier. She was a teenager when she wrote some, I think it was a racist tweet, and she got fired 10 years later. And I, and I think you have the freedom to be a jerk to say stupid things when you're a teenager. I mean, imagine if you go back and look at all the, you know, the things we did as teenagers. I mean, is there not a point? Teenagers. Where, I, I hope they don't check my, my record in the first grade. Well, I, don't worry. I, I have it, and it's buried in a safe place. You know, I hit it. I'm in serious trouble with this cancel culture we're in. Yeah. I mean, this cancel culture, it's gone too far, this wokeness, you know, you, you, we all do things that we regret, but there comes a point where you admit you were wrong, you won't do it again. Isn't that what repentance is all about? You know, I mean, why do we have houses of worship if we don't have a place to have forgiveness, to have understanding? And and yet, you know, wokeness says, oh, no, we're going to look back. And if you dare say something that we think is uh, incongruous with, uh, you know, our values today, you're out. I mean, just imagine a teenager did something that she said she was sorry about, and now she lost a job. I don't get it. Who passes the well, test then? Are these woke people it, so, is their record so clean? Well, I, I look, look, I, I, when I think of woke, all right, I think of people who are being socially conscious, socially aware, and getting involved in making a difference. But I don't think woke is something that, you know, uh, to direct you to start weaponizing information on people that goes back 10, 20, 30 years in their life in order to eliminate them. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we have we have something called now outrage archaeology where uh, you can hire people to actually research yeah. uh, things that you may have said, things that you may have done, especially if you're going to run for political office now. I, if, if you're going to become a candidate for political office, you better be ready to be a target and have your whole life exposed because there's so much information available and memorialized that people can go back to and pull out. And that's a tough thing. And context doesn't matter for some. They don't look back and say, well, what else was going on in our country at that time? What else was happening in that person's life at that time? You know, uh, it, things are taken out of context. And if you don't adopt the same views as the person examining you, you're in a, <laughs> you're in a very, very uh, vulnerable position. So uh, we, we need to, 
We need to stand up against it. I think sometimes people are too timid. They feel if they say something, they're going to pay, you know, some kind of price for it. But unless we say something, we're not going to change the culture. We got to cancel the cancel. Yes, we got to cancel the cancel. That's a good one. That'll make a good sweatshirt, right? Cancel the cancel. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, I just want to we say. We got a guest. We got a right. guest. And, you know, one of the things we want to do, obviously, is have mayoral candidates. Um, because, you know, we don't endorse. Uh, that's that's not who we are. Uh, but we do listen. We do ask questions. And our, our guest today is Controller Scott Stringer, who is one of the many candidates running for mayor. And he's he's been controller for eight years. Uh, so obviously fiscal strength has to be part of the conversation. Where are we going to get the money to pay for all these things that people want? They're important. But, you know, our parents taught us if you write a check, you better be able to cover it. And uh, we we want government to operate in that fashion. Unfortunately, too often it doesn't. And then we pay a, a higher price. Well, as controller, he's been crunching the numbers. So let's hear what he's got to say, right? All right. Stay tuned as we talk we'll to. we back with more of the Reverend the Rabbi right here on Where Rabbi? 77 W-A-B-C, which stands for We Are All Behind. Katsimatidis. Trusted, valued, respected. Those are the qualities you should be looking for when thinking about a funeral chapel. Plaza Jewish Community Chapel is that funeral chapel. Established in 2001 by the Jewish Community of New York, we are here for you as we continue to do the sacred work of caring for those when a death has occurred. Plaza Jewish Community Chapel is a trusted resource when it comes to end-of-life planning. Plaza's values have clearly resonated with the community as we are now one of the leading Jewish funeral chapels in the New York area. Please reach out to us for pre-planning services or to talk about funeral arrangements when you are in need. Visit our website at plazajewish.org. That's plazajewish.org to learn more. Call us at 212-769-4400. That's 212-769-4400. We're available 24 hours a day. Plaza Jewish Community Chapel is truly a service, not a business. Women Heart is in a race to save lives. Heart disease is the number one killer of women. It's 80% preventable if you know the facts. Millions of women are living with or at risk of different types of heart disease, like AFib, which is a type of irregular heartbeat. It affects both women and men, but women with AFib have a higher risk of stroke and death than men. Get educated. See your doctor. Know the facts. Diet and exercise are key to staying healthy. Know the risks. Women Heart does something really unique, solely focusing on women and providing peer-to-peer support. To win this race, we all have to do it together. Our hearts beat as one. To learn more, visit womenheart.org. Let's talk about America. Not taxes or tweets or the issues that divide us, but how incredible our country is. Left, right, up, down, state lines to winding coastlines. Whether you come home to a crowded city street, tree-lined suburb, or sleepy small town, everyone deserves to live in a clean, green, and thriving community. 
and we all share in the responsibility to create beauty that ripples from one neighborhood to another and one block to the next. We are Keep America Beautiful, the nonprofit working with millions of people just like you to end littering, improve recycling, and beautify our communities. Because every mindful action and sustainable habit has a positive impact, and it all adds up. Learn how you can join Keep America Beautiful at KAB.org. Together, we can do beautiful things. Judge Jeanine Pirro. She's the outspoken host. That's what everybody's talking about. Talking about Judge Jeanine Pirro. Judge Jeanine Pirro is dominating the headlines right now. New York discretion with no objections. She demands order in her court. Today at 11 a.m., it's the Judge Jeanine Tunnel to Towers Foundation Sunday Morning Show. Judge Jeanine Pirro. Pirro. On 77 WABC. This portion of our program is sponsored by Calvary Hospital. WABC. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Fantastic, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Fantastic. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, you should know two things about Scott Stringer, who we're going to be talking to in just a moment. Two things you probably didn't know. One, he inspired a lot of faith in people, because I remember years ago, there were many who said, he's not going to get married. And we, they prayed to God, please, we want to see him get married. And he married a wonderful person, Elise, and suddenly everyone said, there is a God. So single-handedly, this man has renewed that spirit of faith. And secondly, Rev, uh, you've never seen him bake matzah, but... <laughs> We were together in Brooklyn in a matzah factory, and uh, he he bakes a mean matzah. So this is the right time uh, to talk about that. Welcome, Controller Stringer. Thank you very much. That's quite an introduction. Yeah, it sure it sure is. I'm wondering why, what kind of single life you were living that they were in a hurry to get you married, uh, Controller. <laughs> well, well, well. I have to tell you, I remember coming to your service. And learning from you, but you allowed me to speak. And I remember for the first time telling your congregation that I had a newborn baby at my age. And I think, I don't know how many thousands of people uh, were in church that day. And everybody started to laugh and go amen and applaud. And I think you were taken aback. <laughs> I was. You, you caught me off guard on that one, really. But yeah. you had 4,000 4, people in the building and right. 10,000 watching online. Yeah, I know. And, 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 and I remember after service, just people coming up to me and as people were leaving and just going, we had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Rev, Rev, I hope you did a second collection for the tuition for the kids. <laughs> yeah. So, Controller, let's talk about this yeah. mayoral race and... Uh, I, I have to believe this is one of the most important, if not the most important race uh, in New York history for quite a while. You know, I, we talk about the exodus on Passover, and but there's a second exodus that I've witnessed, and I'm sure you have as well. There are people who have left the city, and some of them are saying they're not coming back. How do you rebuild a city when people are afraid to travel on, you know, the subways? When people feel they're being taxed at too high a rate, what do you say to them? I say to them, come back, because 
when I'm there, we're going to double down on that value proposition the people of New York have with their mayor. Uh, I'm going to rebuild this city to keep our citizens safe, to make sure that we have open space and park space, that we have an education system, a one standard of education for all our children. I believe we need to have a child care plan that will help the poorest people in the city get access to child care, zero to three education. I want to make sure that we put two teachers in every classroom so that we can equally resource classrooms. You know, private schools do it, and that's a good thing. we got to do it in our public schools. I also think we need real affordable housing because at the end of the day, a lot of people leave because they get priced out of the city. It's not just the billionaires who are leaving. It's right. the people who can't afford the city. Right. So I think I've put forth a, detail, a detailed agenda to get the city back. And then the question is, who's going to be the leader to get it done? You know, it's easy to talk about plans. It's another thing to have a record for implementing those plans. And I am not going to be a mayoralty with training wheels. I'm going to know what to do on day one. So when people hear defund police and they're afraid to travel on public transportation, uh, they're even more frightened because they're saying, we want police presence. We want to feel safe. And when they hear that cry... Uh, I, I think it scares people. How can I live here? How can I do business here when I'm afraid to travel here? What do you say to them? Well, let's be let, let's be strategic. You know, I have a community safety plan. I'm going to appoint a police commissioner that's aligned with my values and thinking. I do worry about the clearance rates, meaning the crime that is not being solved. We have some serious crime. I want to make sure we have more experienced police officers in the streets. I want strategies to combat the shootings in some of our communities. And I also want to do smart work. You know, we look at the subway system, for example, and who's in the subway system? People with serious mental illness. So it's not just putting more police underground. It's also about building out a mental health response network that's actually going to do the good work of helping people who are suffering. We ha- we know for a fact that 40% of calls to 911 are not for crimes. People think that's true. It's not true. So how do we get police to do their job? And how do we bring in city workers and mental health advocates to deal with episodic mental illness events on the streets, quality of life events? It just means creating a 21st century safety plan. And that is what the next mayor has to do. But as you know, this mayor has lost control of the police department and there has been a lack of leadership on these issues. And I think I'm going to bring a strength, a certitude and a specific action plan to keep the city safe, especially from violent crime and also to deal with some of the real issues of homelessness and quality of life issues on our streets. Let me ask you a question, because we have Two issues here, and you know, one of two of many issues, but we have the issue of a rising crime rate and at the same time trying to build a better relationship between police and the communities that they police, especially communities of color. How are you going to get the crime down, which requires you know police tightening up on what's happening in the city at the same time? build the right relationship between police and the communities they serve? I think that's a perfect question, and that's where strategy comes in. Look, I think we have to address the issue of the clearance rates. 
meaning we have the lowest crime solving uh, in many, many years. We're down at 26 percent of, of solving crime. That means we need to double down on our homicide bureaus, just beefing up uh, Brooklyn and the Bronx and parts of Manhattan. We know that crime, for the most part, is predictable. So we actually know where the shootings and the dangerous crime is taking place. Let's reallocate resources to meet those challenges. And then, Rev, you're absolutely right. At the same time, we have to recognize that in this country, there is a social justice movement that is decrying uh, over-policing in communities of color. We saw that with Black Lives. We've seen that with people crying out for change. It is no longer, not that it should have ever been, a moment to over-police or stop and frisk young men of color over and over again. You know, I was one of the first people who said that's a practice that has to end. And I think, look, you know, one of the things that I find when we are in church or synagogue, it's not just about prayer. It's that the church has always been and the synagogue is the centerpiece of our communities. And you know what works? It's when we interact with our kids, when we create mentorship programs and summer job programs, and we give kids the mentorship and the violence disruptors that they respect. It is true that crime goes down, and it's true that we keep kids out of incarceration. We spent 20 years building prisons, not to reduce crime, but to create economic opportunities in upstate New York. I was in the assembly when that was happening, and a lot of us said, don't build jails, build schools and after-school programs. Keep kids away from prison. And we saw what happened when we did that, and the system, private systems of prisons collapsed the economy in upstate New York. And we've got to keep kids away from the criminal justice system. That's the strategy, and we haven't done that. So, Mr. Controller, uh, you know where the you know where the money is, and you know where the money isn't. And I look at all of these programs, and they require dollars. Uh, and there are those who are saying, "Well, tax the wealthy." Uh, and you know, you have Senator Schumer who said, given what the stimulus package did for New York, you don't have to, you don't have to raise taxes. Uh, where do you stand here? I mean, how does, how does one look at a budget? And, you know, I, I, I see how billions are thrown around, not millions, but billions. How do you do it efficiently so that you don't send the message that you're going to have to pay so much more to live here? Uh, if you want this city to turn around. Well, look, let's, Let's let's look at the reality here. The billionaire crowd, the Wall Street crowd, made bank on this pandemic. Something like $38 billion in profits. You know, the Trump stimulus plan benefited the 1%, and Wall Street surged. Uh, the people who got hit the hardest were in communities of color, were frontline workers, delivery workers, nurses, many of the people who, you know, attend church and, and synagogue. And we need to give them the programs and opportunities that they need as well. So I believe that that billionaires want the same thing everyone else wants. You want the trash picked up. You want quality of life maintained. You want open space and park space. You want to be able to open up our cultural institutions. And there's nothing wrong with paying a little bit more uh, to do very big things. And I think New Yorkers are willing to do it. What we are lacking is a mayor who has a clear vision of an economic recovery. I have taken the view that my plans are not just pie-in-the-sky plans, 
but rather I can show you how we're going to pay for some of the aspirational programs I want to see. And that really relies on my experience of being the city controller for the last eight years. I know where the money is being wasted. I know how we can reallocate resources. I've refinanced the debt of this city, saving the city $800 million, close to a billion dollars. And I want to take that knowledge and understanding of how the city works to build out a city that gets everybody involved. That's important because too often you were talking about taxing the rich and whatnot. And the reality is that under uh, the Bloomberg administration, uh, you, you had billionaires coming into the city. Yes, but they also created 265,000 service jobs that employed people who would have alternatively had to leave the city. Uh, so it's really kind of balancing both sides, you know what I mean? And I'm concerned that in the process too often, uh, we don't know how to balance it well, and we, ended up, we end up cutting services to the poor uh, within the society. Well, look, I think you're right about balance and economic opportunity. Look, the one thing that we've got to come to terms with is the backbone of this economy, you know, is also our small businesses. And we've lost thousands of small businesses that actually employ 50 people or less. I think we have to bring those businesses back. Uh, Think about the retail vacancies we've seen in our city pre-pandemic. We now have 17 million square foot feet of vacant retail space. So we need to incentivize new businesses going into these vacant retail spaces. And we've got to get rid of the fines and fees and the harassment our small business owners face every day, not from outside forces, but from our own government. That makes no sense. And so part of that is managing it. But I agree. It's about balance. And again, when you ask me, the people who left, do I want them to come back? I certainly do. And the way I think we bring people back is to show them that this city is alive, that the programs we're putting in place to open up culture and arts and all the things that attract people to New York City. I think that is the key to bringing back our hotels. I think that's the key to bringing back the economy and having a mayor who doesn't need training wheels on day one, I think will signal to all communities that New York City is open for business. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Fantasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. So, Controller, you talk about the bloat, you talk about the waste. And with your knowledge of, you know, what is uh, inflated, where would you make the cuts? What would you do? Let's look at the $32 billion that's spent on education and the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that is wasted on the DOE bureaucracy. So when I said, let's put two teachers in every classroom, K to five, everybody knows that that would benefit all children. They do this in private schools because it works, but the price tag is $300 million a year. I know that between Medicaid reimbursements and cutting the bureaucracy at the DOE, we literally can shift hundreds of millions of dollars to two teachers in every classroom. That would be a game changer for so many kids. And the knowledge I have, because I've done the audits, I know where that bloat is. You know, one of the things I said to the mayor as we were dealing with the crisis, let's look at efficiencies in every city agency because there's so much wasted money, so many outside contracts, so much ways that we can look at this. 
And he finally listened to me. He was able to find those efficiencies. But I led by example. I cut 5% of the budget in the controller's office. That's a $100 million budget, $240 billion pension fund. And I put 5% back into the general fund. I didn't hurt our services. And I laid off not one worker. And it's hard work to identify those contracts and outside contracts. But that's part of management. Because every dollar you save, you get to redirect for programs for the poor, for programs that help small businesses. I think we need a mayor who's able to balance both of these uh, issues. Uh, Controller, let's talk about education. Um, Because, look, you know, we have uh, a million students. We have one of the largest, uh, you know, student bodies in, in, in the nation. And before COVID, there were inequities in education, especially when it came to black and brown students. Now with COVID, that's been exacerbated because they're falling behind as a result of not having the technology, whether it's uh, an iPad or, or internet connection. So once things get back to what we call the new normal, all right, there's going to be an, an even wider gap amongst children of color in the educational system. How are you going to respond to that? It is a it is a challenge that is very real, uh, Rev. And here's how I think we have to respond. First of all, I know firsthand what remote learning was all about because I am a failed remote learning teacher. It was very hard for my wife and I to meet the challenges for our kids. But I had something that most parents do not, and that is a credit card. So when the internet service went out, we were able to double our internet service. I had a credit card. When the remote learning device broke, I had a credit card. And when our kid was sort of struggling after the death of his grandmother, I had the resources to help him help himself. But that's not possible for so many of our kids, 100,000 kids that get into our homeless shelters. They don't have remote learning devices. They don't have internet access. Kids of color in so many communities can't even imagine having parents that could throw down a credit card. They don't have that. And so why aren't we laser focused with our resources to provide every kid with the learning tool they need? When we were going to school, what did we get the first day of class? We got a bunch of free books, right? We didn't buy the books. They gave us the book. Why aren't we making sure that every kid has an internet passport and a learning device? That is what we have to do. But we also have to make up for loss of learning. And I believe by creating a child care program, that will send parents back into the workforce and give kids zero to three the childcare education that will help their brain development and put another teacher in every classroom, one master teacher, one assistant teacher to help kids with math or English or emotional learning. This is how we transform the school system. And I have to tell you something. This is what private schools do. They have the resources. Parents pay a lot of money for this. But I want to give this to every kid in every in every neighborhood. And by the way, Rev, why don't we have equal after school programs? You know, for some kids, education goes to five o'clock. For other kids, it ends at two forty. But like, you know, if I want my kid to be in robotics, I pay for it. If I want them to have chess, I pay for it. Athletics. That's not happening, as you know, in so many of our communities. How many right. times have you seen parents with no resources? Let, let's stop the charade that we have an equal education system, and then let's put programs in place to change it. 
So, Controller, let's look at that on the other side of the equation. Uh, you don't have equal outcomes in education. There are kids who do much better. There are, there are kids who are superior education-wise. What do you say to the parents who yearn for the charter schools, who say, look, there's a better education for my kid there. Uh, I want my child in a gifted and talented program. Uh, there's better opportunity there. Uh, so how do you address that need for those who travel or want to travel on, a, on another path? Well, then people, well, people should have different options and different paths. Uh, but look, the, the charter schools are a few percentage, maybe 8% of the city kids go to charter schools. So we have a problem of 92% of the rest of the kids. And that's where the, that's where I, that's where I worry right now. And look, I think all kids in all schools, they're all our children. Um, but we have to also focus on where the lack of resources are. And, and, and I want to make sure that when it comes to gift and talent programs, look, I, I can tell you this from my lived experience. You know, I have two kids in GNT and I will tell you what I've observed from GNT is that the GNT program works because it's resourced. Either parents pay for the programs in the PTA or there's just simply more resources. Mm-hmm. We have to equalize resources so that every classroom is a GNT classroom. Two teachers. Kids have access to childcare zero to three. You want to transform the education system? Well, you got to pay for it. And you got to give kids in every community the same opportunities. You know, I always say to people, uh, you know, I have two kids in GNT, but you know, my four year old took the GNT test. He, you know, he took it. He couldn't even spell his name. I mean, that, that doesn't prove anything. But what he gets in his program is all the resources he needs to be good. And the truth is about GNT, with the exception of my kids who are totally geniuses. They've never done anything right, wrong. Right. They're like perfect, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, Rev, I wish you they could. They take after their mom, obviously. <laughs> well, that's, that, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And I'm the, and I'm the, that's a universal given. But since it's my, my perfect children, well, no kid's perfect. Don't tell anybody. And every kid needs push. And every kid needs help. Some kids do great in read. Some kids do great in math. Some kids have emotional issues that need to be addressed. You got to identify it early. That's what happened with my kid. It's okay. But let's own up to the fact that it should be resources for everybody. You know, if you catch a learning issue for a kid in first grade because you had extra eyes on the children and you catch that in first grade as opposed to fourth grade, well, you know what? That kid's going to make it. That kid's going to college. You wait to fourth or fifth grade or you wait for a teenager to just, you know, have a meltdown somewhere because nobody identified it. That kid's going to prison. That's what I can't tolerate. That's what the next mayor has to say. Rev, we come to the end of the segment. Uh, but I just want to say thank you, Controller Stringer. Uh, I've known you for many years, and we've been together. We we worked together to get kosher and halal food in schools. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was a, that was an important moment. That made a statement uh, that there's room for you know for all kinds of traditions in a public school setting. So thank you for all that you've done, and look forward to uh, hearing from you in the future. Yeah, I'm sure. That we're, I, I, let me just say this. I'm sure that we have to have them back because, you know, look, there's so many candidates uh, 
uh, running from yeah. there. And there's so many issues that we have to cover, right. the homeless issue and, and, you know, more. But uh, thank you, uh, Scott Stringer. I've known you for many, many years. appreciate who yeah. you are as a person and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, let me let me just quickly say to both of you, you are two people I truly admire. And it's for me a real honor to be on the show. And the fact that both of you would take the time to talk to me, uh, I, I can't tell you how much, um, you know, I, res- I respect both of you. Well, so thank you very, very much. Shows the partnership between the faith community and uh, the civic community. Thank you. Yes. All right. Yep. Bye. Bye bye now. All right. Scott Stringer. Uh, candidate for mayor of New York City, Rabbi, along with the other 20 or the 25. I'm not Well, sure. I know you haven't announced yet, so I'm thinking of maybe 26. Hey, okay, I, yeah. I'll leave that there. <laughs> You're listening to 77 WABC. The Rev <laughs> and the Rabbi. Stay tuned for more. Dear Calvary Hospital, when my beloved wife, Kathy, was suffering from a rare and terminal lung disease, Our entire family knew that she needed expert care. We knew that she needed Calvary Hospital. The skills and compassion of your doctors and nurses managed her pain and embraced us all with comfort and love. You gave us time to be a family again. And when our son was getting married and Kathy could not attend, you arranged a remote telecast so she could watch and be part of the entire wedding from our hospital bed. Who does that? We will never forget what you mean to us. God bless you, Calvary Hospital. Yours truly, Joe Salvaggio. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital. During this time, be assured that Calvary continues to provide the safest and healthiest environment for our staff, our patients, and their families. Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joe Spitasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Rev, I have to tell you, uh, you and I have been uh, involved in a number of elections over the years, not in endorsing candidates, but in, at least in asking questions and trying to elicit uh, what we think are, are honest answers. One of the things I find problematic in all of the discussions is that over the years, the issues keep repeating themselves. We keep talking about affordable housing. We keep talking about education. We keep talking about the homeless crisis. You know, when are we going to reach a point where we can say this chapter is closed in the sense we've accomplished much? We can, you know, we can grow it somewhat, but at least we can be proud of the accomplishment. Uh, there are just so many problem areas here uh, that need to be addressed. Yeah, and, and you know, another problem is that we all we have different ideas coming to the table as to uh, how to solve those problems. So you have a politician; he's in there for what four years, and then needs to go through a reelection process, right? Right. But in four years, what? How much can you achieve really in four years? Uh, with all of the issues that we have to address. I think that, you know, if they focus on several issues that they can turn around in that short period of time, uh, it helps to boost the possibility of them getting reelected. So then you got eight years to work with. You know, I look I look at the safety issue because to me it's critical. You know, if you're if you're afraid to 
get on that train, then you know you're not you're not going to work. You're not going elsewhere. You don't you don't want to live here. I mean, look at the number of people who have left the city, and uh, are they coming back? I don't know. I've talked to some who say no. We're gonna we're gonna rebuild here. It's easier. It's uh, the taxes are less. Um, there are others who are saying who, who actually left um, uh, and came back. They they went upstate. Some went to Jersey. Some went to Connecticut. Some went to Florida, and they just missed the city. You know, and and that's what Scott Stringer was talking about. It seems bringing back that something that is New York City. Yeah. That appeal, that attraction, that causes forty million uh, visitors to come to New York City. You know, uh, if they can recapture that, then, you know, we can get back in shape. Since yeah. Disney came in and others and cleaned up 42nd Street, do you remember what it was like on 42nd Street at one time? I do. Uh, before <laughs> I do. I, well, it's funny, when I, used to walk, when I used to walk around 42nd Street, I used to say that God owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> look at what's going on here. But, but, you know, that something has to have safety. You gotta feel safe walking around. Uh, that's that's critical to me in building, you know, New York back. And I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. But you know, it's the tension that that I, you know, presented to Scott Stringer, the 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 relationship between the police and the communities that they police. And at the same time, needing to address crime. How do you get tough on crime at the same time, you know, build relationship with the community well, that you're trying to get tough on crime with? I think when you sit down, you talk to many of these communities, um, they will tell you, we want the presence of police. You know, you've listened to people in NYCHA housing. We need police here. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that the commission now is addressing, we've met with them a number of times and, Others have as well. I think there are some changes that have been made that enhance community policing, that better relations with communities. Uh, so I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can have the presence of police, which is necessary, and you can have the relations with community, which obviously uh, are necessary. So uh, both go hand in hand because they need to cooperate with, with one you. another. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and it can work depending upon the kind of leadership that you had. We've had uh, several conversations with the new chief and talked about, you know, uh, creating a committee, which they did, to from the community of key community leaders to sit with the process of bringing in the new commanding officer for whatever precinct that may be. So they just started at the 7-5 precinct. Uh, it's a model. I'm involved with that model. And we're actually interviewing the new commanding officer to to make sure that there's a fit. See, those are the kind of changes in process that needs to take place to include the community. And once people feel a buy-in, they're more committed to it. They own it. And they tend to take more accountability and responsibility with it. Yeah, and police, police want to know that they're, they're appreciated as well. It can't be that every time something happens, immediately is a presumption of guilt by the officer. Uh, yep. You know, due process applies to both sides. Uh, and, you know, uh, I find sometimes we're, we're very critical of one, but not of the other. Uh, so I, I think there's got to be that rapprochement between community, between uh, police, and realize that many of our goals are identical. Uh, we both want to go home. 
you know, at the end of the day, we want to get home safely, and we both need to uh, create those areas where we can live with uh, dignity and decency, both police and community. Yeah, let me go back to your original question. I'm going to speak to it from our perspective as uh, representatives of the faith community, you know, leadership. Look, why do we keep going through the same issues over and over like they're being recycled? Reality is, and you and I know this, and, and, and our faith testifies to this, that although civilization advances, human nature remains the same. Yeah. And we struggle to deal with that human nature and how it manifests itself in good and bad at the same time. Yeah. And yet we can look back at religious history and say we've come a long way in the appreciation of the other. You and I attended a service uh, at the Greek uh, you know, Orthodox Church, the uh, the the Archdiocese uh, headquarters, and we sat there, both of us of separate faiths, and appreciating the other. And we can do that. Years ago, you know, that was not that was not the case. We didn't, you know, uh, exchange pulpits. We didn't sit in the pews of others. Uh, we were concerned about our own and not not anybody else. We are not in that place today. That took a lot of work. That's you know what? Not, not, yeah, you bring, you bring that up, and it was a wonderful presentation. Uh, the president uh, uh, weighed in and uh, gave his, his greetings uh, to the new archbishop, uh, L. Peter Forrest. And, hey, look, I pronounced that pretty good. So, you did. I, uh, I, I'm, I glad I, I'm glad I tuned you. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I was impressed with the uh, piece that they did uh, on uh, uh, James Williams who was an African-American that actually fought with the Greeks uh, to gain their freedom Mm -hmm. from the Ottoman Empire. They were enslaved. They were uh, oppressed. And out of that relationship, there were Greek representatives in the United States who became part of the movement for the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. It's amazing because we're connected. We just don't hear the stories. Yeah, we, we, we don't tell, we don't tell those stories. stories. All right, we've come to the end of uh, our program today. And let me once again repeat, uh, this has been pre-recorded because today is the first day of Passover. So I want to make sure I stay uh, on safe grounds. Uh, You're covering yourself. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But uh, it's it's an important conversation. And you know what it shows? We members of the faith community have to be engaged with public officials. We have to hold them accountable, as we're held accountable for what we yeah. do. Uh, Absolutely. That's, that's something uh, that has to be, that has to remain sacred. So I wish you, uh, you know, you're approaching Easter. Yeah, this is our Passion Week uh, leading up to Good Friday, even though, you know, it's the crucifixion, but it's Good Friday to us, and then that leads to the resurrection Easter Sunday. Uh, So it's parallel. Yeah, well, and also, as Cardinal Dolan has mentioned many times, uh, it doesn't end with Good Friday, right? It continues with that story, the Christian story of resurrection. Uh, so you, you, you conclude on a, on a very uplifting note. And we do the same thing in Judaism. We talk about the exodus from slavery. We don't end with people being enslaved, uh, which also inspires us to have hope for the future. Thank you so much. All right. It's been great. And until next time, the Rev. And the, and rabbi. the rabbi. God bless.